So as I mentioned a moment ago, uh, this parable, commonly called the parable of the prodigal son, is arguably Jesus's most famous parable. And for good reasons that I think we'll see tonight, if just reading it alone wasn't enough evidence. But I think that the name, parable of the prodigal son, is actually not the best name. I don't think it's a wrong name. Uh, It is a story about a son who, as the word prodigal means, would go off and live a kind of reckless, wasteful life. Uh, That's what prodigal means, someone who's uh, generous, it could mean, or, or wasteful and reckless with their resources. But it's not just a story about this one son who went off and partied in the far country. It's actually a story about uh, two sons, two sons who, although they look really different on the outside, actually have very similar hearts towards their father. But even more than that, the thing that I want us to see the most clearly tonight is that this is a story from Jesus that shows us the heart of a prodigal father. Uh, the heart ultimately of God that is generous and unrelenting towards his children. So we're thinking together this week about God's great love for us, the king's heart for his children. And as we do that, uh, you see that outline that I hope most of you have in front of you. Uh, We're just going to look at three different things that the father does to show us what his heart is really like in this parable. We'll see the father gives, the father runs, and the father celebrates. So this parable starts with a pretty striking request from this younger son. Uh, He comes to his father and he asks him for his share of the inheritance. And then as you keep reading, you see the, the purpose for this request is that so that he could go off and kind of live it up with his friends in a far country. Uh, Now, as college students at the University of Illinois, uh, some of you might know a thing or two about living it up with your friends. Uh, Some of you might know a thing or two about going to a far country, uh, even to study here at the U of I. But I think we can miss the gravity of what the son is requesting. Uh, It's not just that he isn't future-oriented like we wish that he was. What he's actually saying to his father when he makes this request is, Dad, I wish you were dead. Uh, I would love it if you could give me all of the stuff that's coming to me now, and uh, then we don't really have to have a relationship with one another. He's basically giving his dad the middle finger and just wanting uh, to, to get his stuff and live it up. Now, In that culture, in Jesus' day and age, the older son uh, would have the kind of lion's share of the inheritance coming to him. Uh, He would get something like two-thirds of his father's estate at the end of his father's life. But even though that's true, this younger son, what he's asking for is one-third of everything that his father owns. So in making this request, he's not only uh, jeopardizing his relationship with his father, although that's the most important thing. Uh, He's also putting the integrity and the financial stability of his family at risk. How does the father respond to this request? But before we answer that question, I want you to think for a moment, how would your father respond to a request like this? 
Uh, we probably have lots of different relationships with our fathers in this room. But fathers in Jesus's day would have been fully within their rights. And in fact, it, it would have been culturally expected for them after receiving a request like this, for them to drive this ungrateful son out of the house, kind of beating him as he went. In fact, uh, Exodus 21 says that if a child shows contempt for his father or his mother, that he can actually be put to death. And seeing that, I think, makes it really surprising to see how this father actually responds to this wild request from his son. What does he do? He gives. He gives away one-third of all of his possessions to this disrespectful, unworthy son. He responds to his son's contempt by showing him honor. He responds to his son's selfishness by showing him selflessness. He responds to his son's uh, act of hatred with an act of love. But we see that the father's heart is not just giving towards this younger son who has shown his uh, wicked and ungrateful heart toward his father here at the beginning. Because if we go to the end of this parable, we see in verse 29 that the older son is complaining to the father that basically he's never given him anything. Uh, he's never thrown him the party that he wanted to have with his friends. And even though this older son has lived and faithfully served his father, at the end of the day, he's showing that he wants pretty much the same thing that the younger son wanted. He's accusing his father of not giving him anything. And how does the father respond in verse 31? He says, all that is mine is yours. He reminds this older son uh, that he has a giving heart towards his children. So I want to ask you, who do you identify with in this parable uh, between these two sons? The younger son, uh, the younger brother, we could call him a bad sinner. Uh, he is living an outward lifestyle uh, that is not honoring the father. Uh, he is literally and physically running far away from home. The idols that he has in his life, the things that he loves more than his father, are things like sex, alcohol, uh, the pleasures of this life. He's a bad sinner. But one thing that Tim Keller said, uh, a pastor and author about this sermon that really stuck with me, is that the main point that Jesus is making in this parable is that the Father loves bad sinners and good ones too. And this older brother, I think, fits into this category that we could call a good sinner. On the outside, he seems to be doing all the right things. He's a faithful son. He's serving in the home, but in time we see that his heart, just like his younger brother, is actually far from the father. His idols might not be things like sex or alcohol or partying it up or the pleasures of this life. His idols are things like pride. Uh, he treasures his own control, his own sense of self-righteousness more than being with his dad. Some of us keep God at a distance like this younger brother. Uh, we go off 
and we do things that are against God's law because it feels life-giving or natural to us in the short run. Others of us keep God at a distance. Uh, We stiff-arm him actually by doing all of the right things on the outside. But our motivation is just to put God in our debt, uh, to, to have some control in our relationship with him. We actually aren't interested in being near to God. We just want his stuff like this older brother. Both of these brothers are, at the end of the day, interested more in what they can get from the father than in the father himself. The younger son is a bad sinner. Uh, The older son is a good sinner. But they both need the same thing. Uh, They both need grace. And that's just what the father gives them. So the father gives, but he also runs. After the younger son has gone off and he's uh, spent all of his inheritance on reckless living, he hits rock bottom. And it's almost like after he hits rock bottom, he keeps digging uh, because it keeps getting worse and worse. And he gets to this point where he's actually a shepherd of pigs. Uh, Now that probably sounds gross to any of us in the room, But what we need to realize is that pigs were unclean animals to Jews. That this wasn't just a disgusting job. This was a job that would have brought shame and dishonor on this man. And he realizes, he has this moment when he comes to himself, that there are servants in his father's home that are eating better food than he is. After all, he's longing to eat the pig's leftovers. So he comes up with a plan. And as he comes up with this plan, he also kind of begins to write this repentance speech, uh, this thing that he's going to say to his father to convince him uh, to welcome him back home, not as a son, but as a servant. The good thing about what this younger son is realizing is he's recognizing the misery of his condition. He's recognizing how his sin has brought so much shame and suffering into his life. But he doesn't yet understand the Father's mercy. And we're going to get to that in a moment. So what happens next? The son journeys home. But before he can get there, while he's still far off on the road, what does it say? It says the Father sees him at a distance. He sees him at a distance because the Father was looking for him. That's the only way he would have been able to see him so far down the road. And then after he sees him, what does the father do? He runs. He sees his son because he's looking for him, and he runs towards his son because he loves him, despite the the awful ways that his son has treated him. Now, we need to realize that the son's uh, approaching his father understanding his misery but not understanding his father's mercy is met by a father a uh, the technical term in that culture was a pater familias he was kind of the head of the household someone who wasn't just significant uh, in his immediate family but in uh, the broader culture he was a man of standing in the community this important man he runs out to his son and in that culture the potter familius, the, the, the big honcho, he did not run in public. Uh, it would have been a thing of great shame and dishonor 
for him to run to his son like he does. And yet he, he hikes up his long robe and runs out to his son because of how much he loves him. He's showing the, the shame and the dishonor. He's willing to take on himself to embrace his son and welcome him home. It's often been said that this son's return home is a picture of repentance. Uh, Repentance is the word in the Bible that is not just the thing that begins the Christian life. Uh, Repentance and faith kind of go hand in hand, two sides of the same coin. But repentance is also the thing that is is the whole path of the Christian life. What do we do if, if you're here as a believer in Jesus? You entered into a relationship with him by turning from your sin and trusting in him. But then after that, what do we do for the rest of our lives? We keep turning again and again from the ways that we have run from the Father's home, the ways that we have brought shame and dishonor on ourselves, and we come back to the Father. But the thing that we need to see that I hinted at a moment ago is that seeing the misery of our sin is not enough to actually change us. It's not enough for you to recognize that because you have broken God's good commands, that you are worthy of his judgment, although that's true. It's not enough to recognize the misery that uh, failure to obey God's law brings into your life and the lives of others. What we also need to see if we really want to change is the Father's mercy. And that's something that, at least initially, this younger son does not understand. He shows up with this pitch in mind to ask his father to be a servant again. And yet it's almost as if the father interrupts the repentance speech. And before he can even get it out, he's embracing his son and he's weeping over him. And he's showing him that his mercy is so much greater than the son's sin. Uh, Mercy said this earlier during the announcements. Uh, She said that here in RUF, we believe that there is no one who is so good to be beyond the need of God's grace. But there's also no one who is so bad to be beyond the reach of God's grace. Some of you, I imagine, uh, might be here tonight with significant shame, uh, maybe even self-loathing, whether that's over something that someone else has done to you or something that you've done in your past that's haunting you in some way. One thing that this parable shows us when we see the father running to his son is that you cannot out the mercy of God. And in fact, your confidence in your relationship with him is not the strength of your repentance. It's not how consistently you're turning from your sin and trusting in him, although that's important. Because before the son really figures out repentance, before any of that happens, the father is running to him. Uh, Romans 2 verse 4 puts it this way, that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance, not the other way around. So if you want to be growing in a hatred of your sin, uh, in a way that actually frees you, and also an experience of the joy in life that comes from knowing God as your father, then see his kindness and his mercy towards you. The father ran to his younger son, uh, but there's a sense in which he also ran to this older son. After the party has started, the celebration that we'll talk more about in a moment, what does this 
paterfamilias do, this important man in the community, the, the host of the party, he takes shame and dishonor on himself yet again by leaving that party to go out to his proud older son and to plead with him to come in. And it's at this point that we see that God's love, the love of the Father, it doesn't just transform our relationship with God. It's the kind of thing that actually has the power to transform every relationship in our lives. Where do we see that in this parable? Look at what the older brother says to his father in verse 30. He's complaining about the ways that his brother has wasted the inheritance. And he says, this son of yours. He's distancing himself from this brother. This son of yours. But look at how the father responds in verse 32. After he's reaffirmed his love for this older brother, he says, your brother was dead, but is now alive. You hear that? The, the older brother is saying, this son of yours, and the father says, no, uh, this, your brother was dead, but is now alive. God's love is the foundation of our relationship with him. Because sin is the thing that separates us from God, and there's nothing that we can do to overcome the, the chasm that exists between us and him. But sin also separates us from one another. Sin brings harm and disunity. It disintegrates community in our lives. And the love of the Father is the answer to that as well. It restores us to one another. And as we continue to be a community on this campus, uh, RUF at the University of Illinois, I wonder what would it look like for our community to genuinely be shaped by this Father's love? Uh, that we're not just being restored to God and experiencing his kindness more and more, but we're also being restored to one another uh, because of the great love that God has for us. The father ran to both his sons. The older son, right, is a good sinner. The younger son is a bad one, but they both needed the same thing. They both needed grace. And that's just what the father shows when he runs to his children. Last, I want us to see that the father celebrates. After the prodigal has returned home, uh, the prodigal or generous father, the father with a generous heart, what does he do? He throws a party. He kills the fattened calf. Now, uh, we don't really live in an especially agricultural society. I know a couple of us come from small farm towns. Uh, but a fattened calf was a luxury. Uh, that's probably true today, but it was especially true back then. A fattened calf would only be killed for like a marriage feast. Uh, there would have been enough meat from this calf to feed the whole village, something like a hundred people. So the father is showing his generous love for his son. And remember, the son understands his misery, but he doesn't really get the father's mercy. He's come to him basically wanting a job. But what does he get instead? He gets a party. And if you're here tonight as a follower of Jesus, uh, as someone that's committed your life to him, it is true that God has called you to serve him. It's true that your life is meant to take on the shape of the Savior that you follow. Jesus says 
take up your cross and follow me. It's true that God has called you to a lifetime of struggle and suffering as we fight our sin and wait the coming day when Jesus comes back to make all things new. All of that is true. We're called to be servants. But before we serve God, we're celebrated as his children. The service, the obedience, the repentance, all of it flows out of this free love and welcome that God offers to rebels and unworthy children like you and me. What does this mean? It means that you can't negotiate in your relationship with God. Uh, You can't come to him and set the terms of the relationship. God sets the terms and the terms are grace. The terms are his love. It's free. And as soon as we begin to negotiate with God and try to say, "I'll, I'll do this for you if you do this for me, we're showing that we don't really understand the heart of our father. So this father is celebrating his son's return. It's like the best day of his life. He's throwing the biggest party that this village has ever seen. But the older brother, tragically, is not sharing in his father's joy. Uh, He's outside the party uh, with a bitter heart, uh, jealous about the celebration his brother is receiving. And what does the father do? We've already seen that he, in a sense, runs out to this older, proud son, but he also invites him into the celebration. And I want you to notice that before he reminds this older brother of his generous and giving heart, before he says anything, the first things out of his mouth are that, son, you are always with me. You are always with me. He's reminding the son that the best thing about being in the father's home is he gets to be near his dad. He gets to have a relationship with him. And that's important for us to see because it's so easy for us to really want God's stuff more than we want to be near him or to be like him. The father, when he's inviting this son into the celebration, this is what he says. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. He wants his son to share in his joy. He wants his son to share his heart for this younger brother. I think last large group I mentioned in passing the new Lord of the Rings series on Amazon video. It's a good show. Uh, I finished the first season, still recommend it. Uh, There's a scene in this show when uh, the elf Elrond is interacting with his friend, the prince of the dwarves named Durin. And Durin is from this long line of dwarven kings and all of their names are Durin. So he's Durin the fourth. And there's this moment when Elrond is kind of like poking fun at Durin. This isn't a major spoiler, by the way, of the plot. Uh, but he's, he's poking fun at Durin for uh, having the same name as his father and his grandfather. It, it, lighthearted, just like friends might do. But then Durin turns to Elrond and he says something really striking. He says, the mightiest thing a dwarf can do is to be worthy of the name of his father. The mightiest thing a dwarf can do is to be worthy of the name of his father. When we see this older brother and all the ways that he fails to resemble the heart of his father, 
It's an invitation for us to see first and foremost the free and generous love has for us, whether we are bad sinners like the younger son or good sinners like the older one. God's love is free. But I think it's also an invitation for those of us that trust in Jesus to ask ourselves, are we resembling the Father's heart? Are we a kind of people that are generously giving towards others, uh, that are running towards the outcast and the rebel, that are celebrating when someone, whether for the first time or for the hundredth time, in some new way experiences the love of the Father? We need to see this because really, uh, this is the main point of Jesus telling this parable. The parable of the prodigal son is actually a part of uh, a trilogy of parables. And we didn't read the other two for the sake of time. But Jesus tells these three parables in response to accusations that a group of Pharisees were coming to him with. You see this in Luke 15, 1 and 2. The Pharisees were grumbling, they were complaining, they were muttering. Because, and this was their accusation, Jesus was receiving and eating with sinners. So Jesus tells these stories to show them why he's doing this. To show them that he receives and eats with sinners because that's the kind of heart that God has. Unlike this older brother in this parable, Jesus is the older brother that we need. The older brother who is willing to run into the far country to bring us back home. The older brother who, like the father in this parable, would be willing to take on shame and dishonor for us so that we could be clothed with honor. So that we could be clothed with Jesus' righteousness, his obedience. That's what Jesus did for us in his life and death and resurrection. He's showing us the kind of older brother that this one in our story failed to be, but the one that we all need, whether we are bad sinners or good ones. So I want to close with a story uh, that the author Anne Lamott uh, retells at some point in one of her books. She tells a story about another older brother, uh, an older brother who, uh, so it happens, was still a young boy, but who had a little sister who had been diagnosed with leukemia. Uh, maybe some of you have loved ones that have wrestled with cancer, or maybe even leukemia in particular. And you might know that a common aspect of a treatment plan for someone with leukemia is a blood transfusion. And it was determined that this older brother uh, was a blood match with his sister. So his parents come to this little boy, the older brother, and they ask him if he would be willing to give his blood to his sister. And uh, he hears that, he, he's quiet for a moment, and he says to them, I need to think about it. You can imagine how the parents might have felt when he said that, but they understood this was kind of a big deal, a scary thing for a little boy. So uh, they want to honor his wishes, and he says, I'll, I'll give you my answer in the morning. Well, the morning comes, and uh, the older brother says to his parents, all right, I, I have my answer. I'm willing to give my blood to my sister. Well, later on the uh, table, so to speak, when the blood transfusion is about to take place, the little boy turns to uh, the doctor and he says to the doctor, uh, will it start happening right away? 
And the doctor is kind of confused uh, what, what the boy is asking. So the boy asks again, uh, will I start dying right away? The little boy was confused. He thought that his parents were asking him to give all of his blood so that his sister could have life. And he was willing to do it. Now, that, that's a true story. Uh, that's a beautiful story. But it's actually just a small picture of the even truer and even more beautiful story. Because we have an older brother in Jesus who was not confused, who knew what it would cost, who knew that he would have to give all of his blood on a cross so that we could have life. And he did that to show us the heart of the Father, the heart that God has for us. Whether we're bad sinners or good ones, he offers us his grace and invites us to come home and be with the one who made us and the one who loves us more than anyone else ever could. Would you please pray with me? God, we do thank you for this time we've been able to have together. We thank you for this reminder from your word of the great love that you have for us as our Father and how you've shown this to us most clearly in your Son, our great elder brother, who did not ask uh, what, it, what was in it for him, uh, who did not stay outside the party, but who left his throne in heaven to hunt us down, to pursue us, to bring us out of our sin and our suffering and our misery to show us your mercy. God, I pray that even as we continue to reflect on your word and continue to sing praises to you now, that you would be working this truth more and more deeply into our hearts so that we would be children that resemble your heart and that can invite others to experience your love that you've shown to us. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.